Hello and welcome to Even the Trunchbull, our show about children's books and why we still love them as adults. She's Nina. They're Matt. And we think that children's books are for everyone because we've all been kids. Even, Even the, the Trunchbull. They're all mistakes, children. Filthy, nasty things. Glad I never was one. From Rule Dahl's beloved Matilda, despite her protestations. Each episode, we review one picture book and one chapter book. We're starting off with the books that we read as kids, but if you've got a book you'd like us to review, especially if you are currently a kid, please get in touch. You can email us on eventhetrunchable at gmail.com or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchblePod and on Instagram we are eventhetrunchable. So, what are we talking about this week, Nina? We're talking about mystical cows. We've got two books which feature cows that are mystical so our picture book this week is Maharani the Cow which is written by Christy Shobasudia and illustrated by Nancy Raj and our chapter book is The Beasts of Clawstone Castle by Eva Ibbotson which is where we're going to start so did you read any Eva Ibbotson when you were younger Matt? No I don't think I did. I had a big box set of them when I was 11 This one wasn't included because this came out in 2005, which is a bit after I was 11. So is this brand new to you or is this... The thing that's interesting is that it revisits a lot of themes that she had covered before and done it better. So she's done stories about people who can't afford to keep their castles. She's done many, many stories about ghosts. There's a lot of stuff that she's covered in some way before, but I think that she Mm. does better here. I think of her as our... Northeast version of Judith Kerr is how I think of her. That is one of the lovely things yeah. is that this this book is kind of specifically set up in Northumberland. It mentions yeah. Berwick. Does it mention Hexham at some point? Newcastle definitely. Carlisle. Yeah. Keswick. Yeah. It's it's definitely set here. I mean for me, Clawstone Castle is Featherstone Castle. Yeah, I think so. If you're from London and you don't know what we're talking about, this is how it feels for us all the time. (laughs) In all your London-centric books. I said she's like our Judith Kerr because she is also a Jewish refugee. She was from Vienna and her family came and settled in the UK and she ended up staying and becoming a writer for children, much like Judith Kerr. This is one of her very last books. It's quite a political book. It is, yeah. Her most famous book, Secret of Platform 13, is set in London. And it's like, as she got older, her settings crept further and further north. Like, she did her big London book. And then she's like, (laughs) all right, now we can talk about the motorways in Northumberland. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to give us your spoilerific synopsis, Matt? So, The Beasts of Clawstone Castle. We start with two siblings, Madeline and Rollo. Madeline's very popular. I think she's about 11. She's always off at parties. Very good with people. Very in the world. Rollo is not that at all. He likes animals. He's always looking after little pets and kind of hoarding wood lice and all of this kind of thing and isn't great with people. Mum and Dad go off somewhere. They're sort of very easily, conveniently dispatched. They're really irrelevant is what these parents are. You don't need to remember. (laughs) It's decided that the kids will be sent for the summer up to Clawstone Castle, which is owned by Sir George, which is their great-uncle. So we've got great-uncle George and... Great-aunt Emily. Great-aunt Emily. And cousin Howard. Who are these uh, classic example of ultra-landed aristocracy who 
so landed at the top of society that they're destitute. Yeah. <laughs> so they have a, a castle that is kind of slowly falling apart around them and rapidly decreasing means of keeping it up. There is another castle sort of over the next hill called Trembolo Towers. So this is Lord Trembolo, who is a guy who made his money in the sort of construction industry and then built this castle afresh and decided it was going to be the best and biggest and most visited castle in all of England. And it is. Yeah, it's certainly the most visited in the area, which is a problem for Clawstone. So he's getting all of their customers, all their business. They hold these open days at Clawstone every Saturday to try and get people to come and go around the castle. And And by all accounts, their open days sound really rubbish. Oh, they're just, I mean, (laughs) bless them. Like, Aunt Emily is, like, knitting little lavender bags and making little bowls of potpourri, which just rot underneath because the castle's too damp to dry out flowers. Like, it's just tragic. So, slowly but surely, Clawstone Castle's visitors are dwindling and Tremblo Tower's increasing. And the children arrive into this situation and it sort of all seems hopeless. At first, they're a bit baffled by why they don't just kind of sell up and yeah. buy somewhere nice in the village. And um, the maid, the woman who's there in the castle to kind of help out with stuff, says it's all about the cows. <laughs> so basically, in the grounds of Clawstone Castle, there's a herd of purebred white cows which have been there for, like, hundreds of years and have always been in the care of the castle. And there is nothing that Sir George cares about more and everything that's done is done for these cows if they lose the castle Lord Tremblow gets it he's just going to raise the whole thing the cattle are going to be sold off they need to save the castle in order to save the cows and Rollo being an animal lover is well into this oh he's so on board it's so cute he gets all these places inside the castle where he can stand on a step yeah and he can see them out the east window when they're out to the east and then he can like go over into the nursery on the other side look out the other window and see them out west (laughs) <laughs> and Sir George explains the situation to him and he just sort of turns around and whispers, I'll help you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we need to save the castle. Basically, there's a, a third occupant of the castle. But he's so shy, they never see him. Yeah, it's a guy called Howard. He always scuttles away. He can't be around people. And Madeline has figured out what he is and sort of very casually says, oh, we, we know that Howard's a ghost. <laughs> Which I love. It's just so incidental and offhand. So George and Aunt Emily are like, sorry, we, th- <laughs> we thought that might pass you by, but yeah, he's a ghost. Eh? <laughs> so they're like, oh, well, maybe he's got some like ghost friends who can come and like haunt the castle and that'll drum the interest up from visitors. So basically Howard goes out and finds a load of the haunting type of ghosts, not the sort of friendly, quiet ghosts like he is. And so we have this... Um, cast of ghosts who start haunting the castle but basically they have a, a, a an open day where uh, it's a health and safety nightmare it is <laughs> one of them is like really like strangling people men she likes strangling men. men specifically she was a bride murdered at the altar and someone faints they think they've killed this uh, major general and he goes to hospital but he's all up for it and the visitors start flooding in and it seems like the day is saved but then the vets show up and say all of your cows have got clappets disease and we have to take them away and exterminate them and you'll have to quarantine which means that no visitors can come seems that lord tremblow has won 
Lord Trembler is so happy about this that he volunteers to have the remains of the cows buried in his gravel mines. Yeah. Yeah, it is a bit baffling at that point. It feels like you've already read a whole book and there's been a sad ending. So tell us about the ghosts, (laughs) Nina. So Howard, despite his great timidity, and I really related to Howard. I mean, like, Howard physically runs away from people. Yeah. And when they try to talk to him, he's like, I don't talk to people I don't know. I don't talk to people who I do know. I don't talk. And I thought, oh, it's me. (laughs) It's me. (laughs) So he's gathered together through his ghosty contacts a bunch of ghosts that all come to an audition. And the kids sit on a settee and like audition them for gruesomeness. So there's the bloody bride, Brenda. And so she wants to throttle men. Yeah. And does. Because they ruined her dress. There's um, Sir Ranulph. So he's like a very romantic looking, very billowy white shirt. He was cursed to be thrown into a dungeon and have his heart eaten out by a rat. And the thing is that the rat died at the same time as him. And so now they are as one ghost. (laughs) Man and rat. The rat cannot be taken away from the man's chest and it is constantly eating his heart and it's just gnawing at his heart i mean it it is quite gruesome as well as being quite funny and then there's this big big overcoat and he's a former taxi driver so this is someone who's died of anorexia and this is where i think it is highly iffy you know like they all have quite horrible deaths so I don't know that trivialising that one is more horrible, but the problem with it is that she keeps coming back to it and making a joke out of it. She's very sympathetic to Mr Smith, but the constant joking about fatness, I was not a fan of. So he's a skeleton inside his big coat. And then there's Sunita, who used to work in a circus as the lady who gets chopped in half by the magician, but it went wrong this one time, and so she's actually chopped in half, and she can sort of levitate her top half away from her bottom half and she does this ah sound when she does it which the children found like very graceful and moving (laughs) her parents were from india and they moved to the uk and she i think is hindu which explains some of like her innate understanding of why the cows are so important because cows are important in the hindu faith as well like, is this a good representation of, like, Hindu culture in Sunita? And I'm not sure. I think Sunita is definitely a sympathetic character that you like. I also think she's probably extremely stereotyped. This is the thing, it never says Hindu. It talks about Indian culture a little bit, and I think quite clumsily. Which might be part of the problem, yeah. that it's kind of just mashing. Yeah. Um, who's your Who's your favourite character? Howard. Okay. Who's yours? Rollo. Yeah. <laughs> 100% Rollo. Oh, he's such a he's lovely, so lovely little... I've read a lot of myself in Sir Rollo. Mm. Oh, we haven't talked about the lovely relationship between Madeline and Rollo. We should do that. But it is a really lovely sibling relationship, yeah. actually. She cares for him so much yeah. and does so much mothering. From the age of eight or nine, like Madeline is like picking up the slack that her parents' chaotic lives leave in terms of like keeping the house running and stuff. And being there for Rolo when he comes home from school. It's, there's this lovely yeah. bit where it says in the first chapter, um, he didn't particularly need to be around her, but like he'd always check that she was there when he got home. And then he went to his own room to do his own things. <laughs> yeah. Come in, it's Madeline in. Yeah, good. All is well in the world. Great. <laughs> can go to my room now. I think it's a lovely, lovely depiction of an older sibling. Yeah. yeah. 
it's lovely having a book that's set so specifically in the northeast and is so recognizable and the mm. sort of the descriptions of that landscape and the countryside are gorgeous when they first drive in to the park where the cattle are so george drives them in says we you know we can't get out of the jeep they're dangerous they're wild they're untamed the sort of nature writing and the descriptions of that park as they drive in are, are beautiful and they're sort yeah. of saying like it it feels a bit like a safari in it. They mustn't ever be touched and they've always been wild and there's this idea that, oh, maybe they came here on a Spanish ship hundreds of years ago or maybe they just appeared out of the forest. We don't know, but they're just very special. My adopted city of Nottingham has a big house called Woolerton Hall and the grounds of that are a deer park and I was doing a bit of research on it and uh, found out that the deer were there long before the park was or Nottingham was and that when they built the park they walled in the pre-existing deer so that these deer that are there now are the same sort of the same bloodline as the ones that were always there. As deer that have been there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I sort of like that they're not tame, that you can't go in and pet them, that it's a more wild experience than that. I like that the book is called The Beasts of Clawstone Castle and it's got this picture of ghosts on the front and you think, ah, the beasts are going to be the ghosts. No, the beasts are the perfectly ordinary, <laughs> non-magical cows. But they're very, very important. They are very important. They're what the whole story hinges around. Like, the ghosts are there for the cows. That's the other thing that I absolutely love about this, how incidental the ghosts are. Yeah. I kind of really appreciate it, that, you know, the kids have clocked that Howard is a ghost. And they're not that perturbed by it. They're like, oh, don't worry, we know. Yeah, because I thought that, you know, the ghost coming in would be like, oh, my God, we found all these ghosts. And it was just like oh, this guy's a ghost, so maybe he knows some others. I just really enjoyed that. It was very, very silly. But then Trembolo can't get its own ghosts, so Lord Trembolo starts trying to build these, like, animatronic ghosts. Yeah, because his whole thing is, like, money can buy anything, isn't it? Yeah. I want to talk more about the Trembolo family, actually. They're an interesting bunch, aren't they? Lord Trembolo is all about making money. His daughter, the Honourable Olive is like a walking calculator and like little tiny business person. She's like, yeah. mm, we got 300 visitors today, Daddy. We're going to make this much more money. And I think in five weeks time, Tremble will be out of business. You know, like she's really in on all the like capitalism. And then Mrs. Tremble really isn't. She's just quite tragic character, I suppose. She's like, oh, she had been happy in the semi that they'd had in Newcastle. Yeah. And then she'd been quite happy in the house they had in the suburbs. But as the houses got bigger she didn't get any happier and she just felt this pressure to keep up with being this sort of like trophy wife. Lord Tremblow frequently sends his wife down to London to see a plastic surgeon yeah. to fix things that he thinks are wrong with her yeah, yeah. and she's just quietly goes along with this. Yeah it says oh she knew that plastic surgeons had done wonderful things for young men in the war and so she trusted him and she just did whatever he suggested and she'd had fat sucked out of her thighs and a tuck put in her tummy. But she didn't feel young and beautiful. She just felt like everything was tight. You know, it doesn't go into it too heavily like it's a kid's mm. book, but it feels like a pretty good depiction. It's slightly rule doll. It's a bit like mm. the twits, you know, like, but I think the truth underneath that feels like a pretty good depiction of a... A horrible, abusive marriage. Suppressed wife. And it's interesting what happens with her. So whenever you have a chapter around the Trembolos, you almost don't see her, and then she's always mentioned at the end, you know, oh, she was lying down recovering from a nose job and she didn't feel very happy. Well, she decided not to say anything. 
but she becomes a more important character later. I th- I just think I like that the baddies are these like nouveau riche people from Newcastle. <laughs> I mean, it's this whole thing, you know, like old money is better than new money, even if you haven't got any left. At first, I was a bit annoyed at that. It's mm. the kind of snobbery of the kind of romanticising of the grand old aristocracy in the castles and how much nobler that is than these new upstarts. But it sort of moves past that. I mean, it becomes a very political book. Yeah. And I think a lot of what it's criticising is the whole... Turning everything to profit. Yeah. Yeah. There's this wonderful bit where um, where are the Tremblers and it says, Lord Trembler reckons that like on the land where the cattle are, he could easily fit 200 houses, a supermarket and a garage and it'd be okay because they wouldn't be able to see it from his windows. There's a big hill and some woods so he wouldn't have to look at the kind of people who wouldn't know how to make their gardens nice. Although, come to think of it, there probably wouldn't be room for a garden. It's really quite anti-capitalist as a book. It is, yeah, if if in a slightly snobby way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, this is (laughs) one of her downfalls, I think. Like, you know that the cows aren't really dead, but it really feels like for a good few chapters in the middle, it's like, hang on, what? The cows are just actually dead? Like, (laughs) Like, this has actually happened. So what I found really moving about that bit was the way that it harkened back to mad cow's disease. That was really moving. And when it was talking about the trays of disinfectant that they have to put at the gate of the field, and I was like, oh my God, I've forgotten all about that. That whole thing, every time you went for a walk in the country, you had to step in those trays of like blue disinfectant in your wellies and like... I found that bit really moving where, like, Rolo can't accept that the cows are dead and he goes to Sir George and Sir George is like, look, it was the same when we had mad cow's disease and it was no good flailing and wailing, you know, like... I mean, what I remember about that time I was in France is being told not to eat any beef at school dinners. It's mainly the Mm. thing I could remember. And I remember scraping the mash off the top of, like, a cottage pie. Yeah, yeah. But I can remember, like, the horrible news reports. I mean, how old were we then? Eight? Nine? But of course, as you say, it wouldn't be a very good book if just halfway through the cows die and then the rest of the book is dealing with the fact the cows are dead. And then there's this, like, really weird subplot with some banshees. It's very sort of Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. It is, this bit, yeah. So banshees in this book are explained to be these creatures who cry about sad things. So they used to cry at, like, the funerals of, like, great leaders and, you know, poets and tragic deaths and the thing is that they think that humans are destroying themselves in such stupid ways nowadays that it doesn't merit the crying of that banshee there's nothing to cry about yeah so they're sort of a bit out of work and they need to wail they need to have a proper wail they can't just put it on and they get really like constipated and ill it it needs to be properly sad for them to be able to cry and crying is like a biological need for them so they're sort of addicted to tragedy. Yeah, so what they've become is they've become specialists in, like, extinct animals, basically, because that's really sad, that's properly sad. So they cry over dead animals, and they've heard about this gorgeous herd of, like, rare cows up at Clawstone that's been destroyed, and so they're like, let's go on, a, like, a road trip to go and cry over I know, over the and cows. I kind of love that as well, because we've got this sort of, again, this, like ecological message of like animals dying out is the biggest tragedy but these characters who like recognize the tragedy of that and then they're like oh great fantastic something really juicy to cry about (laughs) (laughs) the kids and the ghosts go to the quarry where the cows are buried incidentally so do the banshees at the same time 
And Sunita, who is the one who had the biggest spiritual connection to the cows of all the ghosts, is sort of feeling around for their spirits or something to say goodbye to them. She's like, I can't feel them. And then the banshees are there going, <coughs> I can't cry. <coughs> oh, uh, and they're blocked and it's because there are no dead cows there. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was quite clever to have them come like, oh no, we can't cry because it's, oh, it's not actually sad. <laughs> like it's almost <laughs> like a biological mechanism that they, even if they don't know why the cows aren't there, like the tragedy is not present in order to summon the tears. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they're like coughing and snorting and trying to get going and it's just not working. So eventually they come to the conclusion that the cows are not there. So this really gets the hopes of the kids up and, you know, the ghosts are sort of trying to like keep it under wraps. They're like, okay, they're not here. It doesn't mean they're not dead. Yeah. Try to contain your enthusiasm. So the kids go to bed and then the ghosts go for a great ghost. Well, I'm going to read us a bit from here. Rolo had gone to bed at last. All the children slept. The castle was silent. But the ghosts were not asleep. As the clock struck midnight, they glided one by one out of the nursery windows and set off along the road which led through the village. No one saw them. They moved invisibly and fast. At the first crossroads, they separated. Ranulf and his rat went west toward the hills and farms of the Lake District. Brenda took the road to the east, which led to the villages and resorts of the coast. Sunita and Mr. Smith glided on till the road divided once again. Then Sunita and the feet made their way southward, heading for the big towns. Mr. Smith went north. They had said nothing to the children. A ghost search is best carried out silently and without witnesses, for the people that must be sought out and questioned are often shy of the undead. They will only help or speak to others of their own kind. And... It was from phantoms like themselves that the ghosts of Clawstone hoped to discover what had happened to the cattle. So that for me is one of the examples of like the lovely localising writing. Mm. Um, and also just like really beautiful. I, I just love that passage of they're all just like floating out, spreading out to talk to the other ghosts. Yeah. What, age is, what age of kid is this book format? Um, I think it would be a great read aloud. Yeah. For a younger kid, it gets a bit a bit graphic, a bit scary and graphic, a little yeah. bit sort of. But it's more threat of violence than actual violence. You don't actually see anything happen. Yeah, I'd say for like a younger little in, it'd be a great read aloud, and you can sort of be there through that. Yeah, for reading on your own, nine ten, it is fairly long. Yeah, precocious eight or a nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it probably goes up to about twelve or thirteen. Yeah. Um, especially good, I think, for people who are scared of talking to people. Yeah. People who really love animals more than they love people. And the ecology message is strong. Yeah. And the workers' rights message. The workers' rights and the migrant workers' rights message is strong as well. Yeah. Um, also, like, kids who like spooky, gory, horrible stuff. Yeah, totally. There's loads of gore and... Yeah, uh, but, like, comedy gore. It would be a really fun read aloud. I'll tell I you what, know. read it in your classroom in a school in the northeast yeah. have it as you read aloud yeah that's true it's nice that you know i know we talk about representation a lot on this and like mm. obviously like representation of non-white experiences is way more important than oh i'm from newcastle and it's nice to hear a geordie accent in a book <laughs> but that is nice but it too is nice. like it's nice to have a book where it's actually set up here and like oh things happen here too yeah so that's yeah, I think that's a good shout as well. Yeah. Get it in your northeast classrooms. 
along with David Almond and all the rest of it, definitely. Are we ready to move on to Maharani? Aye. Do you want to tell us all about it? Yeah. So, second book of the podcast is also about a very large white cow. (laughs) She's called Maharani. So the book is called Maharani the Cow, and it is written by Christy Shoba Sudhir and illustrated by Nancy Raj. And if you are one of our Indian listeners, you might have already seen this around because it won the Hindu Young World Good Books Award for Best Illustrated Picture Book in 2018. And I think that now you can buy it in the UK as well. It's a book for really little ones, I think. It's about a cow sitting in the middle of traffic in a large Indian city. The traffic's going along, you know, the day is going along as it does, the cars go along, the taxis go along, the bikes go along, and then everything stops because in the middle of the road is Maharani the cow. And she's really big, she's white, she's swatting at a fly with her tail, she's chewing the cud, and she won't move. And the traffic cop is like, come on, move, and she won't. Some people are feeding her. The traffic didn't scare her. The noise didn't disturb her. She just sat on the dusty street, shooing flies with her tail. Some gave her carrots, some gave her bananas. She chewed them one by one, swishing her tail gently. So she just has a day in the middle of the road. And then at the end of the day, she goes home. She just gets up and leaves. (laughs) And and the traffic can resume. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of these books where very, very little happens. Um, it's mm. got these very few words, and it's very onomatopoeic. It's quite fun, actually, to see the sounds. Bean, bean, went the cars. Bomp, bomp, went the buses. Vroom, vroom, went the motorbikes. And suddenly everything came to a halt. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of, like, repeated sounds. My favourite one is uh, Ma, Ma, Mood Maharani. Ma is, <laughs> is far more accurate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you can see why this one prizes for the illustration. It's just these gorgeous street scenes with so many different faces doing different things. It's one of them books with very few words, but a lot of stories in the pictures. If you were just to stop mm. on any particular page, like I'm looking at the one with the school bus, mm. every kid mm. in there is doing something slightly different. Not yeah. all of them are even concerned with the cow. <laughs> And if you are a person who's old enough to read, there's lots of like extra text in the pictures. The pictures are really busy. Everybody in the pictures is brown-skinned as well. So that would be like really nice representation if, for example, your baby is brown or you are brown. I mean, it's very simple. It's for really, really little kids, I think. It's one of those that they could like bar and bean along with you. It's just a little, a little slice of life. I think the thing that I love is just that the workings of society work around the animal yeah. rather than vice versa. <laughs> she just gets to sit there. Yeah, and that's the story. What the moral of the story is, sometimes cows sit in roads. And you've got to wait. You've got to stop for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of play with angles as well, like camera angles, like you've said with other books. Like There's this great mm. overhead shot of Maharani in the traffic. And she is the size of a car. (laughs) It's lovely. It's sort of bird's eye view of this whole city. You can see all the different houses, people playing cricket on the other side of the river. And then you can see the whole backed up traffic. And then just this like big white cow. I just love the like the the stillness in amongst all the busyness. I think is lovely. Like everything's so frantic and carrying on. 
and this cow's just having a bit of a sit, and that's <laughs> fine. Like, that's an okay way to spend the day. I think it's an important yeah. message, particularly at the minute. <laughs> yeah. You can just have a sit, and then at the end <laughs> of the day, you can just get up and walk away and be somewhere else, and that's fine. No one has a right to say otherwise. Seems quite happy. She's quite beautiful. She's a very beautifully drawn cow. She's got these gorgeous big eyes. What age of child is this format? Well, as you've said, dead little, I reckon. I'd say babies. Aye. One. Yeah. yeah. Get them to join in with all the onomatopoeia. Aye, colours and noises and nice pictures. And, yeah. Um, oh, what can you see yeah. in this one? Yeah, yeah. Picture books are written to be read 500 times by the same person. Yeah, it's kind of like a poem, isn't it? It's going to bear repetition. Yeah, it's quite a lot like a poem. It's not got any sharp edges to get stuck on. And it's got a much wider world outside of what is shown. This book is like a tiny little slice, a tiny little window into this whole huge busy world with loads of stuff going on. And this is just like one small thing that happened to happen in the middle of it. (laughs) Yeah. And we're just going to focus on this cow. Yeah. Oh, it is really nice. It's sort of, it's almost meditative, isn't it? It's like, Mm. uh, let the thoughts come and go. We're just going to keep sitting here. The cars will honk their horns. The traffic (laughs) cop will blow his whistle. But we're just going to keep sitting here, you know, just being ourselves. She's like a mindfulness icon. It'd be a good bedtime book, this. I think it is very calming. Yeah, yeah. Now I can imagine reading this at night time. Because you, mm. you, know, you get the scope mm. of a whole day and then the sun goes down and Maharani gets up and goes somewhere else. And then it's time for bed. It sort of flows perfectly mm. into time for bed. So that was episode 18 of Even the Trunchbull. Thanks for listening. Once again, if you've any thoughts on books you loved as a kid... Or love now as a kid... Let us know, or ask a grown-up to let us know. We're at eventhetrunchable at gmail.com, or catch us on Twitter and Facebook at TrunchblePod, and on Instagram at eventhetrunchable. Intro music for this episode and every episode is What a Wonderful Day by Shane Ivers. And remember, kids' books can be for everyone, because we've all been kids. Even Even the the Trunchbull. Trunchbull.